Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, James chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the final two verses of the book of James. We'll be looking at several phrases in those verses, so we want everybody to be able to look on with us and have a Bible. So these gentlemen have some as they make their way back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they will get one to you. And it's marked at James chapter 5, so you can turn right there. From time to time, we see advertised on television that there's going to be an exclusive interview that a celebrity or a politician has decided to give. This Friday at 9, see so-and-so's exclusive interview with Oprah or Larry King or Barbara Walters or whoever. Have you ever thought about why it is that so many celebrities or politicians or whoever it might be that's gain some notoriety because perhaps they're in trouble, select the same handful of people to grant interviews? Now, it's partly because the selected interviewer has a large audience, and it's also partly because they're experienced and they know how to conduct an interview. But another reason is that that celebrity or politician is reasonably confident that they will not be pressed on uncomfortable subjects. They'll be asked, but not pressed. Celebrities and politicians handpick their interviewers so that they can reveal only what they want people to know and not be made to look too bad for hiding. And that's because for all of us, the truth about ourselves is sometimes painful. And so we select our cadre of acquaintances so that we feel safe. Because we know that they won't tell us the painful truth. And so most of us are content with interminably casual relationships where no one has permission to speak truth into our lives. You may be familiar with the miniseries Anne of Green Gables or Anne of Avonlea. In one scene, Anne is getting familiar with the new town she lives in that's mostly owned by a single family, the Pringle family. And she's observed their ways for a while, and she asks a friend, what makes people in this town hold such grudges against one another? And her friend says, oh, the Pringles have always bickered a great deal among themselves. But then she quickly adds, but we're very polite to each other in public. You see, that is what most of us want. We want nice over truth. And not only can hearing the truth about ourselves be painful, giving the truth can be costly because we all want to be liked. But since most people don't want the truth and you want to be, and you're not going to be liked if you tell it, then we all learn to engage in meaningless conversations that never touch on real issues, and they certainly never tell the other party they're wrong. The risk of losing friendships or being labeled as self-righteous is just too costly. It's just too great. The truth is, friends, for most of us, we value people who tell us what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear. And this is the case despite what the Bible says. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
And our culture in general, and church culture in particular, are more about being nice than being honest. I mean, what else can explain the popularity of Joel Olstein? If you want to be liked by everybody, you won't be any help to anybody. The Journal of Staff Development featured an article called When Nice Won't Suffice. Honest discourse is key to shifting school culture. So this is a journal primarily aimed at educators. And it describes how educators feel deeply reluctant to openly critique their own instructional practices or those of others, and how this serves as a barrier to thoughtful, meaningful sharing, especially in professional learning community contexts. Instead, teachers tend to only say nice things about each other's work, even when the goal of the discussion is to improve practice. The article provides a helpful list of signs that the culture of nice may be creeping into your professional conversation. They say teachers rarely question each other's and their own practice, assumptions, and beliefs. Or teachers only share successful student work to avoid judgment from peers. Or teachers who share their unsuccessful student work and those examining it make excuses as to why the students performed as they did. And the article says the unwillingness to truthfully and honestly confront inferior methods can cost students a better education. And God says unwillingness to truthfully and honestly help those we love with sin can cost much, much, much more. You see, friends, the Bible calls us to help one another. It calls us to love one another, hear this, it calls us to love one another more than we need one another. So in order for you to break out, for order, in order for me to break out of the culture of niceness and be willing to tell the truth even when painful, I have to be willing to risk it. I have to be willing to pay the cost. I have to love you more than I need you. And today's passage in God's Word lovingly confronts us with the need to lovingly confront others with the truth. Verses 19 and 20, James chapter 5. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Do you remember the ad campaign to reduce drunk driving that said, friends don't let friends drive drunk? Well, the Bible teaches in this passage and in many others, friends don't let friends sin. Now, just like you can't force a person to relinquish his car keys, of course, we can't force a person to change their thinking or their talking or their behavior. But God Almighty commands us to try if we truly love one another. And we're going to see we're all called to this endeavor, not just some of us. And we all need God's aid to overcome our inability and our unwillingness to pay the cost because we love the individual more than we love their friendship. Let's bow together before the Lord and ask Him to help us.
Oh, Father, you know how unbalanced we are in the way we express the virtues that you lay out in Scripture. You have told us to be people of truth. We can only know you, the God of truth, because you have truthfully spoken to us about who we are and who you are and our sin and the remedy for that sin. We are to be people of truth, but we are to be people of love and grace and mercy as well. Lord, it is so hard for us to hold those in balance. It is so hard for me to hold those in balance. We may give the hard truth in an unloving way, or we may fail to give the truth because we do not love as we ought. We need the aid of our Savior, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, who was, according to Scripture, full of grace and truth. We want to be people of truth who lovingly help those you bring into our circle of influence with the grace that you provide. So we ask you, Lord, to instruct us and grant us the grace to be able to represent the Lord Jesus in our relationships. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I call your attention to the outline that was inserted in your program. And if you look at that, you'll see that the top half has blanks that are already filled in. The bottom half does not. And that's because I started this message last Sunday, and the intention was to cover verses 13 through 20, but I only made it through verse 18. And the first two major points in the outline, that's why those are filled in. And if you were not with us last week to hear that message, or if you want to hear any past messages that we have, those are all on our website, as it says at the bottom of that outline, you see, at cbctrenton.com. And so today we're going to look at those final two verses, verses 19 and 20. And they're connected, our verses 19 and 20, to the six verses that precede, because verse 13 begins with the same phrase as verse 19. It, said, it says, any one of you. And so back in verse 13, as we saw last week, is, is any one of you in trouble? Or is any one of you happy? But then you come down to verse 19, and you have the same phrase. If any one of you should. And then in between, verse 14 does the same thing. But there's an important difference between verses 19 and 20 and verses 13 through 18. In the passages that we looked at last week, Help was initiated by the individual who was in need. In verse 13, we're told how to help ourselves. In verses 14 through 18, we're told who to call on to get help from others. But in verses 19 and 20, it's not the individual who needs help that takes the initiative. It's the person who can help, who looks and sees and then acts. You see, friends, most people are not going to initiate help with their sin. Now, that usually happens only when the sin has reached a crisis stage and is causing the individual particular trouble and turmoil in their life. And then, often, I will get a call, or some of you will get a call, and that's right and good, and we want to to help in whatever stage the consequences of sin may be. But to help someone in a preemptive manner, before the full consequences are realized, that's going to require someone who loves the individual enough to address the issue without being asked. 
And so you see the first couple of major points have been filled in. And then major point number three, verses 19 and 20 of James 5. We're going to see that believers are to pursue one another. Again, those verses, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The passage tells us that we're to help one another, and then it tells us why we're to help one another. And I've got three points then underneath that major point number three, A, B, and C, that deal with those. The fact that we're to help one another, and then two points on why it is we're to help one another. We are to help each other. Remain faithful, I say in your outline, to the truth. Remain faithful to the truth. And so James says, if one should wander from the truth. So in the assembly to whom James is writing, there are some who have come to believe in a way that's contrary to the Word of God. The Word of God is truth according to Jesus. Jesus said, sanctify them, you see on the screen, by, your, by the truth, your Word is truth. And so someone has wandered from the teaching of the Word of God in some way. The Bible gives us examples of people in Scripture who have done this. These people are actually named and (laughs) memorialized for now two millennia in the pages of the New Testament. It says that Hymenaeus and Philetus, they've departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. And so they have wandered from truth, doctrinal truth, about a cardinal doctrine, a foundational doctrine, that of the resurrection. And so they've departed from a teaching of the Word of God. I encountered, I've encountered lots of people like this over the years, but I remember several years ago going to visit a man who was, who was ill, and he was actually, had a bed laid out in his living room in his house, because it was one of those big hospital beds that he had to have, and it was the only place that was large enough. So he walked in, and and there he was. And we had a long chat about his health, but about his spiritual health as well. And he explained to me this popular notion that says, you know, I don't think you need to go to church to have a relationship with God. And I truly believe that when I'm out fishing, I can have a relationship with God just as well as when, when I'm at church. And you all, you all hear that, and so I don't believe in organized religion, you know, and I say come to our church because we're not organized and all of that. <laughs> but, but, but people say that, and I said to this guy, well, I said, you know, I agree with you. And he's like, wow, a preacher type agrees with me on, on this. I said, I agree with you that you can worship God in your car, you can worship God in your bed, you can worship God anywhere. But let me add this to that, though. You and I agree on that. But then there's the question of what God says about how he wants to be worshipped. And God does say that he wants his people to gather together regularly. He says that. Were you aware of that? I said to him. And he had not really thought about it. He had just sort of rolled his own, made it up. And he had to be confronted with the truth. That man actually started coming to church as a result. He since moved away. And so... We need to help each other remain faithful to the truth. That is, in one category, doctrinal truth. And that's why I say in your outline, remain faithful to the truth, first of all, in creed. 
Creed means, it's a, from a Latin word, which means I believe. And so we have a creed, a statement of belief, a statement of faith that we derive from the Bible. That's our creed. And if someone departs from the truth of what the Bible teaches regarding the faith, they have come to believe something contrary to what the Scripture teaches. They need to be lovingly confronted with that. But when someone comes to believe something contrary to what Scripture teach, teaches, they also begin to behave in a manner that's contrary to Scripture. You see, because belief in turn results in behavior, and the Bible always connects truth and deeds, faith and works, belief and behavior. The one flows from the other. Ideas have consequences, and what we believe affects how we live. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he said famously, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is saying you'll know the truth and as a result of the truth you will live in a certain way with freedom now to serve God in the way you were designed to serve God. So what we believe has effects then on how we live. Jude Verse 4, Jude speaks of certain individuals who have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Now notice, they have perverted teaching, they've perverted doctrine, they've perverted truth, and because of that now, it's shown in the way they live. And that's why I say in your outline, we help each other remain faithful to the truth, yes, in creed, in doctrine, in teaching, but also morally in the way we live, or as I say, secondly in your outline, in deed. Both in creed and in deed. And if you've been with us through our series in the book of James, or if you just do a casual reading in these five chapters, it's very easy to see that sin against truth in James is not just failing to know the Word, it's not just intellectual sin against the propositions of the Word of God, but rather it's failing to do what it says. Isn't that what James tells us in the very first chapter? And verse 22, be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And James is here warning that it's an ever-present danger in the church that we can come to behave in a way that's contrary to the Word of God. And that's why verse 20 speaks of not only wandering from the truth, but then refers to it as the error of His way. And so this man that I met on his bed in his living room and said, you know, you can worship while you're fishing, and I had to lovingly, I trust, uh, confront that false notion. He had this sort of roll-your-own kind of worship. And as a result, because he had that idea, because he believed that, it then affected the way he behaved. He disobeyed Scripture's command to assemble regularly. And that's what happens then when we adopt some false belief. No matter how big or how small, it affects the way we live. So we are to help one another remain faithful to the truth. But I say secondly in your outline. Here's why we help each other. We help each other because of valid concern. We are to do this. Verses 19 and 20 make very clear that we're to do this. 
But we're to do so for a couple of good reasons. One is valid concern. Verse 20 says, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, about whom is this talking? Is it talking about someone who is truly a saved individual? You all know what I mean when I say saved. The word saved means rescued, delivered. Rescued by God, delivered by God, saved by God from the eternal consequences of sin because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is this referring to a saved person, a Christian? Or is it referring to a backslidden believer? Now, verse 19 says, my brothers. And so many look at that and they say, James is addressing them as brothers, therefore they must be brothers. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. James, James doesn't know whether every single person in this assembly is genuinely a believer or not. He's writing to them because they are part of the assembly, they are part of the church, and therefore he assumes that they are believers, and therefore he addresses them as brothers. But the fact is, over and over as we're going to see, Scripture warns about those who would be in the midst of the church who are not genuinely believers. Profession does not automatically mean possession. It's possible to be a false professor. To profess Christ but not possess Christ. And so Scripture contains passages like 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Now how do you know the difference? When you have someone who is refusing to deal with sin, how do you know whether this person is a believer, a backslidden believer, or somebody who's never been a believer? You see, the difference between, friends, a genuine believer and one who is not, is not the presence or absence of sin. Even as believers, of course, we still struggle with indwelling sin. We still sin, every one of us. That's not the difference. The difference is how we react to it. And the one who is a genuine believer will welcome the conviction of the Holy Spirit even through the instrument of one of God's, a brother or a sister, one of God's people. A person who is an unbeliever says, yes, I know I'm sinning, I don't care. And if we behave in that way, we are, we are giving evidence that we are in grave danger that our profession may not be something we actually possess. But in either case, the call is the same, to believe the truth and to turn from the error of one's way. And James says the result of that is rescue. He uses the word save from death. Rescue from death. Now, if this is a believer, then this is to save him or her from physical death that may result eventually from this continued disobedience or naturally from the very kind of disobedience they're involved in. And if this is an unbeliever, it's referring to spiritual death. The wages of sin is death, says the Bible. But if it's a believer, God will not allow that person to continue to go on in sin. That's why 1 John chapter 5 says, There is sin that leads to death. 
And we see examples of this in Scripture, of people who were believers but were sinning. And God says, I will not allow my name to be profaned in this way. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Lord's table is spoken of, communion. And there, Paul, who wrote it, says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, that is, died. And so one result from which the person who is willing to pay the cost to intervene because someone is sinning, whether in a big way or a small way, from this going now to the point of death, whether spiritual death on the part of an unbeliever or perhaps physical death on the part of one who is a believer. Another result is not just death, but according to verse 20, a very happy result is not just rescuing, saving from death, delivering from death, but covering over a multitude of sins. Now this word cover... It's translated cover in verse 20, Greek word, is a word that's used in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, where the Hebrew is translated into Greek using the the same word. We find the same word in Genesis chapter 6, where God told Noah, make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch. When it says coat it, Cover it. Cover over the wood is the same word used to describe how God deals with our sin. And so if you cover over a material with paint, the original material disappears from sight. We've had a lot of that that's gone on in this building over the last couple of months. And God covers our sin. He hides it from His sight. He coats it. Now, the Scriptures give a number of reasons why this this coating, this covering, this hiding of sin would take place. One is for the sake of the individual sinner, as a merciful act on his or her behalf. And we see an example of this in the act of Joseph. You all remember the story of the birth of Jesus found in Matthew 1. And Mary is found to be pregnant. Joseph is engaged to her. They've never been together, and so this is a scandal. And what is he going to do? And the Bible tells us, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. You see, for her sake, in a merciful act, he wants to to cover this in order for her not to be disgraced. So we we cover for the sake of the offending individual. Of course, there was no offense on Mary's part, but Joseph didn't know that. Or we cover because of a greater good. We're willing to overlook it. And we're willing to overlook it, especially when we're the one who has been wronged. If it's someone else who's been wronged or something else that has been wronged, then perhaps we, we need to take action. But if it's us, we need to ask ourselves, can I overlook this for a greater good? And this is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 6. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? 
Why not rather be cheated? You see, there's a, there's a greater good here, and that is the testimony of Christ before an unbelieving world, and you're going before unbelieving courts against one another. Why not, for the greater good, for the greater cause, be wronged or cheated? But it's not just painting over, coding over, overlooking, but in Scripture, when God speaks of our sin and covering of our sin, it's covering by atonement. It is not just sweeping it under the rug. But it's putting sin out of sight by a sufficient sacrifice. And this is using cover as we do in a different way in English. Think of a a financial transaction. Perhaps you're planning for something you're hoping to do in the future. And you put away a sum of money. And having put that away over a period of time, when you're finished, you say, I think that should what? That should cover it. That should pay for it. And that's what atonement is. That not only should cover it, it has, thanks be to God, covered it in the blood of Jesus. Atonement is covering by a totally sufficient payment through the blood of sacrifice by which God has dealt with our sin. And a helpful way for me over the years to think of atonement is to just break that first word up, atone, at one. And atonement is God's means by the blood of the Lamb, of making us at one with Him, reconciled with Him. And so in the case of an unsaved person, covering over a multitude of sins by confronting this person with the truth, of sin and their need for this covering. It means an application of the blood of the Lamb for the first time. And Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that Christ's blood need be shed only one time. When Jesus Christ had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God and thus makes full atonement for our sin. But in the case of someone who is a saved person, but they are sinning and they are now being confronted with that sin. A sin of belief or a sin of belief that has now translated into behavior. This person's position, if they're truly a child of God, has changed before God and their sins have been covered. But what we are in our position, friends, we need to demonstrate in our experience in everyday life, the Bible teaches. And so they too need to be called upon to confess sin. And 1 John 1.9 says famously, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so why do we help each other? We are to help each other. Because there is a valid concern about, the, about death. There's a, a valid concern to cover over a multitude of sins. But then here's a second reason why it is that we are to help one another. And I have that in point C in your outline. We help each other, yes, because of valid concern, but also because the Bible teaches that we are family. That in the church, as brothers and sisters, we are family. 
And when we see one wandering from the truth, because we are family, we seek to bring that one back from the error of his way. Now, who does this? Verse 19 says, any of you may wander from the truth. And verse 19 says, and someone may bring them back. Verse 20 says, whoever does this. So any one of us is capable of wandering from the truth. And then it says, though, that someone or whoever should be involved in bringing them back. Now, we think, don't we? We think that's the pastor's job. I mean, if anybody should be hated in the church, it should be that guy. You do the heavy lifting, you go and tell them they're doing wrong. And, you know, I, I, I joke, say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but only somewhat. It is, it is costly to confront people with sin. And friends, a healthy church does not have one or two or five people doing that. A healthy church has brothers and sisters who care enough for one another and love one another such that they are willing to tell the truth. One commentator says the local church is a fellowship of mutual care in which each watches over the other's welfare and the things of God and is on the alert to minister and rescue. This phrase in verse 20 that says, covering over a multitude of sins. It's used a couple of times in the Bible. It's used in Proverbs where it says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. And then it's quoted a couple of times in the New Testament. One of those is in 1 Peter chapter 4. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, please follow this, dear friends. So love covers and overlooks and forgives. But in James chapter 5 and verse 20, you don't, read it, you don't see the word love there, do you? Love is replaced with speaking the truth to the one who is wandering. And that covers over a multitude of sins. You see, our formula is this. Love equals nice. And God's formula is this. Love equals graciously helping a brother or sister for their godliness. You say, well, aha, it's... It's the graciously part. You see, it's not what the person said. It's, well, it's not. It's not what they said. It's what? It's how they said it. You see, I don't have a problem being confronted and admitting I sin. It's just that no one has ever approached me the right way. Now, it is, it is difficult in the extreme for every last one of us, and certainly I include myself in this, for us to have the balance of grace and truth that the Lord Jesus has. There is no doubt about that. It is a battle for every one of us. And I need to engage in that battle, and you need to engage in that battle. As for the sake of our brothers and sisters, we're willing to pay the cost of confronting one another when, when we sin, when we are going astray. 
And the Bible does indeed give the requirement to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. But bear in mind that we each come, now hear this, friends, we each come with a built-in defensiveness against being told that our attitude or thinking or words or actions are wrong. Do we not? And this is why it's so rarely done. The receiver is defensive and the initiator is aware and afraid. And so what can break that defensiveness down? So that we receive rebuke as intended by those who love us. Well, we'll conclude with that in a bit. But let's be sure we understand our need for one another's help. Biblical counselor and author Paul Tripp wrote in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, a woman once approached me during a seminar on how to help people change, and she asked, if I have a Bible in my hands and the Holy Spirit in my heart, why do I need to be counseled by others? He then asks in the book, how would you answer her? He says, it's true that the Holy Spirit is the wonderful counselor of the church. He enables us to understand God's Word, convicts of sin, works in us a willingness to obey, and enables us to do what we've been called by God to do. But that does not mean I no longer need one-on-one ministry. You could use the same logic, he says, to argue you don't need public worship or the public ministry of the Word. He says this woman was missing something significant which is captured by a few short verses in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now notice the progression here. Sinful, unbelieving, turns away. And then the next verse, verse 13, that we'll see in a bit goes on to speak of a hardening that results. I'm going to read you a lengthy I'm going to read you a lengthy excerpt from that book of an illustration of how this sin that starts in the heart moves to unbelief and moves to turning away and then to hardening. A married man becomes interested in a woman at work. This is from Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. He thinks about what it would be like to get to know her better. He begins to spend way too much time studying the way she dresses, the look of her face, the way she keeps her hair, the shape of her body. As he does this, his desires grow. He's not considered a physical relationship. He's not thinking of leaving his wife at this point. He decides to talk with a woman. What harm could it do? After all, she's a colleague. So we ought to have a good relationship with her. It isn't long before they're having long lunches together and talking often during the day. One day he offers to take her home and spends 45 minutes sitting close to her on the couch. He touches her hand, tells her how much he appreciates their friendship. On the way home, for the first time, he wishes he wasn't married. When he arrives home, he's careful about how he reports on his day. That night he lies in bed next to his wife thinking about the woman at work. He's progressively giving in to subtle patterns of sin, but he doesn't see them for what they are. Yet there's something else going on inside of him. His conscience, if he's an unbeliever, conviction of the Holy Spirit, if he's a believer, he's uneasy. He feels a bit guilty. 
He doesn't experience the joy he once did at seeing his wife at the end of a long day. He knows he's all too excited to go to work in the morning. He knows he's begun to be more critical of his wife and that he feels a unique kinship with this other woman. So he argues with himself, trying to quiet his conscience. He doesn't see it, but he's responding to subtle patterns of sin with subtle patterns of unbelief. He tells himself that he hasn't done anything wrong. The Bible does not forbid a man's friendship with a woman. He's a faithful husband. He hasn't done anything adulterous. He convinces himself that the relationship's a good thing. He needs more of these kinds of relationships at work. These existed too long in the comfortable Christian ghetto. God's actually pleased that he's reached out to someone. Not only is he acting on the sinful desires of his heart, suddenly backing away from the interpretive authority of Scripture, he is doing now. Giving in to patterns of sin, he's been followed, has been followed by unbelief, and all the while the man and his wife, now hear this, are still actively involved with their church. But unbelief, he's, but underneath it all, he's begun to lose his spiritual moorings. A childlike trust in and obedience to the word has been his moral anchor. He had been sensitive to the ministry of the Holy Spirit or to his conscience, but now he's cut the anchor chain and is adrift and he doesn't even know it. Because he's lost those moorings, he drifts further. Before long, he and his co-worker are leaving at, at lunch and not returning. He begins to volunteer for business trips he knows she's going on. The relationship is increasingly physical. His relationship with his wife is disintegrating, but he doesn't care. In fact, he wonders why in the world he married her. He's spending more time at work in the evenings and on weekends, and so he's less involved with activities at his church. He's quit reading his Bible and praying. He feels quite trapped by the whole, quote, Christian thing. His wife pleads with him to go with her for counseling, but he's not interested. There are more evenings when he doesn't even come home. Lives fi lies fill his conversations with his wife. His pastor pursues and pleads with him, but he's unmoved, no longer attentive to the Word or sensitive to his conscience or the Holy Spirit. His heart has become hard. He is not sure he believes, quote, that stuff anymore. And before long, he's making plans to leave his wife. I have seen this very scenario work out multiple times in the lives of church attenders over the years. Sinful Unbelieving, turning away, hardened. And what if somebody had spoken truth into the life of that person at the beginning? What if that person had relationships in the body of Christ where people were allowed to speak truth into his or her life? To keep them from the error of their way. Paul Tripp's illustration is of adultery and its roots. But friends, it can happen in much seemingly smaller sins. Why are two people at odds with each other in the body of Christ? A good desire becomes idolatrous. Then the person is, is confronted. You know, listen guys and gals, we've had plenty of chances for that just in five weeks in a new building. Somebody's using my space. Notice, my space. See, before we didn't have any space. Now we got space. Now we got turf. So now that we got turf, we got turf to defend. We got turf to fight over. Praise the Lord. 
And so it can be about that. And a sinful heart begins to develop. And then an unbelieving heart about what God says about the preciousness of our relationships. Unbelieving what the Bible says about selfishness and self-centeredness turns away from God's remedy, is hardened eventually. And what is the antidote, the answer to all of this? Well, there you have verse 12 of Hebrews 3, but then it goes on in verse 13. Encourage one another daily. As long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Not just on Sunday. Encourage one another how often? What does God say? Daily. That assumes you've got relationships with people outside of Sunday morning. The Word of God assumes that throughout. The Bible tells us, Romans chapter 15, we are to engage in this ministry. I'm convinced, my brothers and sisters, you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to, and then the word there, instruct, is also translated warn one another. And in fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's translated that way. We urge you, brothers, warn, same word, those who are idle and disruptive. Friends, you'll only do this if you're willing to risk being disliked, to be a bit weird, to go against the cultural grain. And you will only be willing to receive this kind of gracious confrontation for your godliness if you're secure in Jesus Christ. You see, the reason we get defensive is because we're not secure in Jesus. If I'm secure in Jesus, I know Jesus has covered it so I can face it. And in fact, I can thank God that it's been pointed out to me. The comfort of the gospel gives us freedom to obey the call of the gospel. Knowing that I don't have to perform or to pretend, pretend before people or perform before God means I can be honest with myself and I can appreciate those who have been honest with me. And so I say in the take-home truth at the bottom of your outline, life in a fallen world should drive us to, as we saw last week, pray for, and now this week, pursue one another. We're going to pray and, and stop. Let me ask you, friends, are you willing to risk it for the benefit of someone else to graciously confront them with the truth? And let me ask you, if you're the recipient of that gracious confrontation, are you willing to receive that as a good gift from God's hand for your godliness? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the atonement, the covering that is ours because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that our sins have been forgiven us past and present and future. We thank you, Lord, that our position in you is now one as a son or daughter of Christ if we've come to you through the Lord Jesus and his person and work on our behalf. We thank you that we, come what may, will be in your presence if we have indeed come to you through Jesus. But Lord, we struggle with indwelling sin. And we struggle to, in our experience, be what we are. And we need one another, and you have given one another as a gift in order to 
progress us toward Christ-likeness. Oh, Lord, that's what we want. That's what we desire. It's what we need. But we need the painful work of your word and your spirit administered often by your people. Help us to have redemptive relationships in the church, not just outside the church. Help us to see our need of the atonement of Jesus on a regular basis so that we can live as we are, in fact, before you. Lord, I pray that we will love one another more than we need one another for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our brothers and sisters. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.